Hey guys, you're listening to episode 73 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to Julie Wilson, president of Women Doing Well. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Julie Wilson, president of Women Doing Well. Julie spent time in the media industry before moving over to the ministry world with Crew and later with Generous Giving. It was during her time with Generous Giving that she became heavily involved with Women Doing Well, which seeks to empower and activate women towards their unique purpose and joyful generosity. Stay tuned to hear all she had to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second and share it with somebody who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well may be a link in that chain. All right. With that, let's get to the interview. All right. We're here with Julie Wilson from Women Doing Well. Julie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about your own story and how you got to where you are today? Well, I was raised in Connecticut in a pretty typical middle-income family. You know, I had a sister, a dog, a couple guinea pigs, And my dad had a starter corporate job at an insurance company. And life was really pretty simple. When my dad hit 40, he decided to move us to Miami, Florida, and he wanted to start a company. And that was not going to go over very well with my mom, who really loved the cold and disliked the hot. (laughs) And so he is a real Democrat. And so he held a family meeting where he pre-padded the meeting by telling my sister and I that Florida was the home of Disney World and (laughs) took a vote. And so, of course, he won and my mom lost. And so she had to negotiate full control of the air conditioning 365 days of the year. And she was a very hungry spiritual seeker. And while we went to church, there wasn't a lot of Bible and she knew that was the key. So she asked my dad, you know, if we move, I want to find a Bible teaching church and I want you to come with me. And I will say that my upbringing, God was very present, but it was religion, not relationship. It was a lot about just the traditions and the routines. Our home, while loving, was not peaceful nor biblical. So as my dad started his company, an entrepreneurial person will understand this. It was very up and down the first three years. I mean, there were times where we had not enough money to go to the movies and really it got kind of desperate. And so that third year, my father heard a sermon on tithing and the scripture that says, test me and see if I won't open the floodgates. And my dad really was down to his last few dollars. And he thought, what do I have to lose? And he almost threw all of it in the plate as it passed by. And that week he got a really large deal that launched his business. And years later, I'm talking like just maybe 15 years ago, I asked him a lot of questions and I always thought my mom was the spender and that's why he worked so hard. He goes, no, I was the one that wanted to be successful. And I tithed because I was afraid to stop. It had nothing to do with God. It was like almost like God blessed him because he did that. So he kept doing it, which is biblical, but it was very devoid of spiritual understanding. And I do think that in our case, I'm not sure exactly because I was a kid. And I do wonder if the church saw his giving because it was large as his company grew if they equated generosity with spiritual maturity, which would have been a misinterpretation. So I like to say that I grew up in a loving home and I grew up in a privileged home. I had all of the things that life could offer in Miami, Florida. So it was not a bad life. But if you saw behind the doors, it wasn't a peaceful life. My mom was unhappy. She just wanted my dad home. She did a lot of things to fill that gap. You know, she spent a lot of money. She loved decorating, played a lot of tennis. He didn't want her to work. So, you know, she spent and he loved to work and worked. And so my sister and I were often kind of just left to fend for ourselves. 
if you will. And I took all of that to school in Boston. I went to Boston University. I graduated with a degree in journalism. I never really went to church once I left home. Spirituality was important, but the specifics didn't matter. And I moved to New York City to kind of pursue my dream job at NBC TV and to kind of get that media career off the ground. And I was so surprised at the craziness of New York and the fun that I was having. I was singing on a boat, interviewing for the job to make money and, you know, hanging out in bars and just having a blast. I mean, but underneath it, I was also feeling really lost and insignificant. And that was very unusual for me. I had sort of been a very confident person, but I was beginning to have a spiritual crisis. I just didn't know that's what it was. And so I, in panic mode, went to church at my sister's invitation because she had heard about Redeemer Presbyterian. And I was going in for my final interview at NBC. And I thought, I got to get in good with God because I've been really off page. Like I've been not (laughs) behaving well. I broke all of my own rules. Like I had my own religion, you know, like I do these things. I don't do these things. I was doing all these things that I wasn't supposed to do because I was in New York. So I went to church and long story, but I eventually got to a Bible study, became a Christian. And it was the week I started at NBC in my dream job that I came to faith. It was super inconvenient. I was like, this is terrible. I'm at like the Mecca of my career. And now I'm like a weird Christian. Like, and of course I loved it, but it was really inconvenient and weird. And then both my parents came to faith shortly after that. So my sister and I came first and my parents And I didn't really understand. I had grown up in a Bible teaching church that had a huge missions program. So missions to me was always like in another country and you had to wear weird clothes and the kids always like miserable looking. And I thought that would be like the worst job ever next to being a pastor's wife. Like I would want neither of those. And so I basically thought I was joining the Peace Corps for two years, but went on staff with a ministry called Crew, that's their name now, with young professionals. And I thought it would be two years, but it takes you that long just to kind of raise your support and get where you need to be. So it turned into 14 years and 11 of those were in New York City. Then I moved to Orlando and I eventually left crew and took like a year and worked for an ad firm and just was so off purpose. And I did have my purpose statement, which is important to the women doing well journey. And I just remember thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I got to get back to ministry, but how do I do that? And that's when I got a call from a friend who invited me to interview at Generous Giving. And that is kind of where my generosity story started, which was 2007. So it was a while ago. That's a little bit about how I got here. Yeah, thanks, Julie. I can relate to so many things that you shared along your journey and just kind of taking a break from church through college and then My brother helped me get back involved, and I just see so many parallels. But I'm really curious because I noticed that once I went back to church, I started noticing things that I didn't really notice before growing up because I had a new perspective, just being out in the world on my own, having a job, some responsibilities, and managing finances. Obviously, taking a biblical worldview on finances starts to change the way you think. I'm wondering if that played into your story much as you went through your dream job and then with crew, did that really have a formative effect on the way that you saw finances? I would say that one of the biggest gifts my father gave me and my mother, but really my father was the one making the money. He was so generous with us. He was not home a lot, but I never lacked for anything that I needed for sure. And then he was big because he had been in the Peace Corps. He was big on like experiences that helped you understand the world. He let me go in ninth grade on a mission trip with the church, with Billy Graham Spanish Crusades. And I saw poverty that was life-changing. I'd never seen anything like it. And he said, yeah, that was important for you to see because you're growing up in a wealthy city with a lot of fast cars and fast lifestyle. And Most of the world lives like the people you saw. I said, that's so wrong, dad. And then in college, I took a Russian history class and my professors took us to Russia. It was a really expensive trip. I was already costing him an arm and a leg for the college that I chose. And he said, no, you should do that. It'll be good for you to see what communism looks like. And he was so generous and so happy about it. When I became a Christian, had no problem thinking that God would provide for me. He was like shocked. He's like, I don't know how you're raising money. That is just so weird. This is just a little side story. I asked him for contacts, you know, because I had no Christian friends. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I had a couple, but like, 
I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how God was going to raise all this money for me to live in New York. And he gave me a bunch of his business contacts who he had like supported their kids running marathons. And he's like, call these people. I've given them money. And so I actually had a lot of not yet believers on my team. And a couple of them supported me faithfully for that whole time I was on staff with crew. It was such a formative time to see God provide. And then I like to tell people, do never say no to God. I lived in Manhattan. And the two biggest concerns I had was where am I going to live and what am I going to wear? Because I had lived in really beautiful apartments because my roommate had all these contacts. And so I thought on a missionary salary, I'm going to live like in a shoebox. And when I tell you that every apartment got better than the next, I'm not kidding. I went from the Upper West Side on Central Park when I moved there to, well, I did have one year in like a kind of a scary place, but it was just one year. Then we moved to a four bedroom doorman building where we always lived with four women at a time. It was like we had three bedrooms. It was beautiful. It was incredibly luxurious. It was like the heart of the West Side. Then I got invited to live in a friend's apartment on Central Park South on the 21st floor where I could just go up two floors and have a view like Woody Allen's movies, like gorgeous. And then my dream was to live in a studio and I got a rent stabilized studio that was less than a thousand dollars right on the middle of the East side in the restaurant row. So, and then clothing wise, my mother used to buy retail. She hated sales because they were inconvenient. And so I would have clothing from Ann Taylor retail, like not that that's so extravagant, but it wasn't cheap. And I thought, how am I going to dress myself? Well, the very first Bible study I had was a group of fashion designers, which was hilarious because that is not me at all. And one of them worked at Ann Taylor and she called one day and she said, what are you doing at lunch? And I said, why? And she goes, get $200 and get down to my office. I'm like, what for? She goes, just trust me, get $200 in cash and come down. Well, they have these things called sample sales where the models have worn the clothes once. They are my size and everything was either five or $10. And so I basically had a off the rack wardrobe for $200 that I just still giggle at when people are worried about God providing. I don't judge them because if you didn't have my dad, I get it. Like if you haven't experienced that in your human father and your human mother, then how are you going to really translate to trusting God? So my tithing came naturally to me. I did it like a tickled tither, check the box because my parents did it. They talked about it. It was a big deal for my dad's business. My grandparents tithe. None of us had Jesus as the, we weren't overflowing with gratitude for Jesus's salvation. It was like, literally like, you should do this. This is what good people do. So we did it. So I guess what happened to me is I continued and I still continue to grow in understanding God doesn't need anything and we get to give. This is like a total invitation. It is not a ritual of checking and money's just a tool. It's one of the ways that you can be generous, just one. And it's important. So you mentioned generous giving. I think that's where you left off. And we have heard a lot about generous giving on this podcast. And I'm sure that that had an impact on you as well. I'd love to hear what your experience was like there and what God was doing through you at that time. So being in ministry, I was used to receiving. And I really gave up my career. That was not hard for me to give up. I was so convinced that God had told me to do this and had provided for me. But let's be real. I was usually receiving all kinds of generosity from others. I myself tithe, but I never did much more and I didn't really worry about it. So I was a receiver and I was so happy to have this job at Generous Giving. And I have always worked with leaders, you know, Christian leaders and women that were in the workplace. And so I'm very comfortable. I don't need wealth. I don't want it. So I can minister very freely. So I thought, at least it's going to be a great fit. I love this. But my first day of work, I got to my job and there was like a pile of books on my desk with a brochure at the top. And it said, for God so loved, he gave and gave was in bright yellow. And I went, "Uh oh, I work at generous giving and I'm not generous. (laughs) And it has a little backstory. If you back up two years before I took the job at generous giving, my mom died of ovarian cancer. And she had fought it for three and a half years. It was super sad. One of her friends sent me an article by a columnist, and I don't remember her name, but in it, she said, if you've lost somebody you love, a way to honor them is to pick a quality that they embodied and try to live into it. 
guess what mine was? Generosity. Because both my parents expressed their generosity in really practical and radical ways, even not as believers in the sense that we would define a believer. And so I'd forgotten about that. And so now I'm sitting at this desk and I'm looking at this brochure and I'm going, holy smokes, like, wow, like that was my word. And now I have the opportunity to grow. I mean, that's how I kind of came into the conversation. I wasn't this radically generous person. I was like a practicer of generosity. And honestly, I was the storyteller and program director and communication person at Generous Giving. So I was growing incrementally. I was helping people tell their stories. I was being impacted by that, but I was always comparing and I always felt less than, not like in a insecure way, just in a, what's my little, you know, I'm going to try to do this radical giving stuff. I mean, I'm coming out of it. You know, I was a missionary and generous giving was a good job, but it was still what it was. And a lot of my story, I grew so much in those early years with generous giving at the same time. I limited it because of my limiting beliefs. Like I couldn't be as generous as the people I was working with. I didn't want to go make that kind of money. I think if that was my calling, I could have. I was content with where I was, but I sort of didn't know how to join the party because at that job, you know, generous giving is very focused on financial generosity, which is so important for where the kingdom is right now. But especially for women, generosity to access that deeper radical giving, you kind of have to look at it more holistically. And I was that person. So women doing well was a big part of me while I was at generous giving going, Oh, I need to engage more. I need to bring my full self, but I've been afraid to, because I'm not an entrepreneurial man and I'm not married to somebody that's that I was single at the time. So I hope that helps a little bit that I'll stop there, but I grew a lot, but I had a lot more growing to do. So you mentioned towards the middle or end of your time at Generous Giving, becoming more heavily involved with women doing well. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how women doing well began and what that ministry seeks to do. So I was actually brought on the Women Doing Well team originally. I was interviewing with my friend Cindy because she had been brought on to reach women. Because at every Generous Giving conference, there were half women, half men. And one of the women that was attending regularly said, hey, there's always men up front. Where are the women? And so one of the staff at the time was like, hey, we should look into that. And part of that was to bring on a woman. And the woman they brought on was like, I'm going to need some help. This is a big job. Can I get my friend Julie to join me? And so Cindy and I really were brought in to focus on women. But in the interview process, they found out my background in television and programming and storytelling, and they wanted to grow that area. So I ended up in that department. And Cindy did the, you know, relational management and working with women direct. Cindy wisely knew that there would be a spiritual battle to engage women around money. And so she put a prayer team together that still meets today. It's eight of us. And we basically would meet monthly by phone and get together once or twice a year to specifically pray for our own generosity lives and what God was doing around the country. So women were always the focus for me at Generous Giving. And Generous Giving did a great job. We did women jogs. We did women's stories. We would always have a woman up front in the conference. We did a lot of things. But Cindy left to start another ministry. And I was like, why am I the only woman in the boardroom? I would attend as a communication director. Why am I the only woman at the executive table? There were five of us. I was always outnumbered. There's four of them, one of me. And I started talking to the then president, Todd Harper, and I just said, I'm learning a lot about how women are not engaging. And I'm concerned because I can't represent all women. And he agreed. And we did some fun things to try to like move the needle. And he walked in my office one day and said, Hey, there's this four women. They've started this organization, women doing well. They want to do a research study and they want to know if we'll help pay for it and give some names. Do you think we should do it? And I said, yes, a hundred percent. So I'm not really a research person and I'm not a founder of Women Doing Well. I originally started by just going, great, let's get some research. A number of weeks later, I had personally called the generous giving women because we don't give out names or anything. We were very protective of the people. So uh, I, you know, we had quite a few women take the survey. So I got a report that had just the generous giving women and how they compared to the 7,300 plus women that took the survey. It's the largest body of research in the world still today 
on women and giving. It happens to be Christian women, but it is literally a massive body of information about what motivates Christian women to give. And I think it would apply to women outside of Christian faith as well. Anyhow, I looked at the research, the executive summary and our women, and I'm like, nothing I didn't know here. Like, I don't know, really. Like, I'm trying to say that women need it differently, but we're at a small ministry and we're doing the best we can. And I was sort of not frustrated, but like, oh, well, and I stuck it up on the corner of my desk. Fast forward a couple months later, I get this phone call from one of the women in my prayer group who was a radically generous woman, Janice Worth, who was involved. She loved hanging out with all the generous guys. You know, She can hold her own. She's a New Yorker. She's just a great lady. And she was hosting a journey of generosity retreat at her home at the time and not attending it, just hosting it. So she came out at lunch and there was one of the Women Doing Well founders, Pam Pugh, attending and they got chatting. So Women Doing Well at that time was a consulting firm. So they had done the research and their hope was to build a consulting firm to help ministries and Christian organizations better serve women. And as they were shopping the research around, what they were finding is nobody was buying what they were selling. And that was really frustrating. So Jan says to Pam, hey, you know, we want to take this direct to women. Like, forget the organizations. That's too much work. There's too many hoops to jump through. If we start spreading this message to women, they're going to be like me. I've never heard these statistics. Like, this is going to change the world. And Pam agreed, but said, listen, we don't do women's events. We never really wanted to do that. She said, great, you come speak. Get generous giving to do the event. And that's when I got pulled in. And we basically programmed an entire day based on the research with generous giving's DNA to create truly transformational environments. You can't ask anything of people considering generosity. So we just designed it. It was really a merger kind of of the two DNAs. And it was a fun month of putting the program together. And I went down for the site visit and there were 15, 20, I don't know, 25 women at the site visit. And I looked at my friend, Jan, I said, who are these women? She goes, they're our table hosts. They're so excited. I go, about a site visit? We don't even know what they're coming to yet. Like I was literally like, Jan, we don't know what this is. We don't know if it works. Like stop, stop. And then the founders, Pam and Sharon and Sharla were shopping the research and talking about this event that they sold Houston and Orlando before we had ever proven it. So (laughs) it was a fun journey. I was looking on your website earlier, the Women Doing Well website, and I saw that there's a study that's done regularly that shows that women-led households are more likely to give. And my first reaction is, I'm not surprised. And I'd love to just dive into why is that not surprising to hear that? I think one of the things that makes it that way is that women are more empathetic and that's just scientific. You know, you can look at just the research that's out there. They have a higher level of empathy and compassion. And you add to that the way that a woman's brain, I'm sure in some marriage conferences or books you've read, you've heard that like a man is a file cabinet and a woman is spaghetti. So there's these differences that I believe are absolutely foundational to making the kingdom work. Both are needed, both are valued. And so a woman's brain just works more holistically. So you add to that, she's the nurturer like we're more nurturing, we carry life and we birth life and they can't live without us for the first few months. It's not that dad's not important, but there's this kind of God-given life that we bring. And so that makes us very concerned about the community. And so you add all those factors together and we just are wired differently. And it makes sense to me that generosity is more natural for us because it requires seeing people, seeing need, not being afraid to sacrifice. I mean, it's innate in us. And yet, you know, I think, or especially around money, we can all have scarcity mindsets and we can have issues around what money means. And so we all have our work to do. But I think that would be some of the reasons why women just statistically are more generous. It's just is how God's made us. So I'm very interested in this research that you're talking about now that kind of launched all of this, can you maybe summarize a couple of the key findings that they found of those 7,000 women that they looked at? Sure. Well, probably the one that is most interesting and why we do what we do is of those 7,000 plus women, only 6% identified as confident, equipped, giving to their maximum capacity, 
and excited and joyful in their giving. So 94% of women that took that survey want help. And they actually gave the keys to what would help them. So we know their motivators and their barriers. And the number one motivators, the things that fuel their ability to be generous and bold is to know their unique purpose. And purpose is why they are uniquely here on earth. Not the general purpose of a Christian to love God and glorify him forever. None of that. This is like the more, not nasal gazing, but like there's only one of all of us, one thumbprint, one eye print, one heartbeat. God designed us all differently. So it's really understanding yourself so that you can understand why God has you here. That's what they're looking for. That's how we define purpose. The second thing they need is passion. And that's because we really do see the needs around us. And most women say yes to too many things. And that results in burnout, resentment, and really negative things. Even though they're being really generous, they're giving their time at school, they're doing the program at church that they need to do. They're leading a Bible study. You know, there's just so many things. I was one of these women. I like to say, if you're not living a purposed life, like you're living, you know, really focused and clear, women tend to fall into three categories. You're busy, you're bored, or you're bitter. And all three of those are not the way that God designed us to contribute in the world. He really designed us for the abundant life. And that's not a financially abundant life. That's a rich, meaningful, fulfilled life. And that's what everybody wants. And the world is selling us that we get that from vacations, nice clothes, belonging to the right clubs, being part of the right businesses, all the things that the world's throwing at us. It is so hard to combat that if you're not deeply ingrained in scripture, surrounded by generous people. It's just super hard to combat it. And so in the research, the other thing is that women, and this just came out in NCF's research, women like to collaborate in their giving. They don't like to just do it by themselves. You know, they can collaborate with their family, but they also like to collaborate outside. So they like to join with other families or giving circles. Women are part of giving circles, 25% to 12% for men. That was from the NCF study. They also essentially collaborate at 13% versus 8%. So these things are super important to motivate them. Community is key. Without community, women almost can't access their full generosity. It just doesn't work. And we're seeing it at Women Doing Well. We're seeing it at the ministries we're helping. That I mean, the funny thing is we do help a woman in her generosity. But what people talk about is that they feel known, seen, heard, And they feel part of something bigger than themselves. And they feel purposed and significant. And like, we call it like ignited. They're just like, whoo, I'm fully who I'm supposed to be. And it looks different. Like some quieter women, they're writing a book or they're contributing quietly to a ministry they love. But for some women, it's literally like life-changing. And I just get super excited about the research and how it can help us access what women need uniquely. I think as we live into that research, it really helps. So the last thing I'll say is that barriers for a woman are fear of the future. Will I have enough and will I be enough? You know, because money is more than just what it can buy. It's what it can make you be. It can make you fit in. And for women that all, I think for men too, but we have the research on women. And then another barrier is disrupting her family you know, causing conflict. So these things are easy to address. They're not easy to do, but there's scripture and there's ways that you can overcome that. And that's what we try to help women do. And then their motivators are discipleship. Women look for spiritual transformation around this topic. That's what they're looking for. That's what motivates them. So that is why we do have an event, but it's the beginning of a pathway. We have a discipleship pathway because discipleship And having the community over time is what helps her lock in and grow confident that she's doing the things that God called her to do and having the support she needs to do the things that call her to be a little more courageous than she'd want to be. Julie, I really love the way that you talked about finding that purpose. And what I've found just hearing so many stories and a little bit in my own experience is when you start to zero in on what that purpose actually is for your life then giving kind of comes naturally and in so many more ways than just financially. And it's not always that you feel like an obligation to sacrifice more. It really feels like, well, of course I want to do that. I want to participate. I want to experience the joy that comes from being part of this. And the result is giving more. Have you seen that through the work that you do? Yes. 
we've definitely seen an increase. You know, we do third-party research and women increase their financial giving. They increase their volunteer on-purpose time and they roll off of things that are no longer in line with who they are and what this season is calling them to. So the way that we help a woman in the very first part of the pathway, we help her define her unique two-word purpose statement. It's a little test that we partner with another organization to give, and it can take actually a couple years, you know, because part of it is you have to not be afraid of your own shadow. And a lot of women, I just want to say, this is a generalization, but there are boxes that many women feel like they need to fit in, especially in their spiritual life, in their church life. And so there's nothing wrong with some of those boxes, but if those boxes limit you and you don't feel free to activate the parts of your life that God's put in you to share with the world. And again, remember, number one barrier is to disrupt the peace. It's because that's how God's wired us. It doesn't mean we're off the hook. We still have to overcome that if God's asking us to do something. But understanding that and being sensitive to that you have to really call women into who they are. They're going to hang back if there's a box they think they're supposed to fit in. They're responsible to get out of the box, but it sure does help when somebody says, hey, I want the real you. Are you being real? Like, is this really who you are? Are you sharing what you really think? Because I need your opinion. You're not on this board to just be the female voice. I want to know. And what she's wondering is, you say that, but are you going to listen? Because I don't want to share again if you're just going to like listen and then do nothing. That hurts. And so... There's a lot of that that I think women aren't even aware they're bringing into the generosity space. And I think there's a healing journey that can happen alongside of a generosity journey that we love seeing. And that purpose is game changing. So a friend of mine just got her two word purpose a little bit ago, and it is igniting joy. And she really feels like, I didn't know that was okay. You mean it's okay just to want to bring joy to people? And yet, you know, she just felt like she was too much for most environments she was in. And she is just sharing her generosity and loving it. And the people around her are loving it. They're like, it's a blessing. In addition to our own self-narrative that can sometimes limit us, I think that the enemy of our souls really don't want this to happen. And so we need all kinds of tools to combat that. And the two-word purpose tool is game-changing. So I'll give you an example. My two words are cultivating change. And you do a quick little tournament to get to those. And then you refine it if you need to by looking words up in the dictionary, because it's not a magic thing. It's more like you got to dig deep in your spiritual gifts, your personality, what's always been true of you. You have to like really understand who you are in Christ. And then it kind of appears to you. So my first one, my borrowed one was cultivating growth. Because I'm a discipler. I love to just help people grow. But when I went through that that kind of change in careers and that little messy season after my mom died, I realized that something wasn't working. So I called the purpose expert, Mary Tomlinson. I said, Mary, what's going on here? And she goes, what's your purpose? I said, cultivating growth. And she said, tell me more. And she goes, you know, let's work on this. Which word is uncomfortable? I said, cultivating is the right word. That nails me because I'm long suffering. I love to try new things. I'm very entrepreneurial. I'm not afraid to fail and learn from it. That word cultivate really nailed me. But the word growth just felt a little flat. And so we dug around and it really is a totally different word. Same family, but cultivating change is all about movements. And God lit a fire in me in college when I took a movement class. So we studied like the environmental movement, the men's movement, the women's movement. We like studied what makes something go from a conversation to a movement? And when I became a Christian, I was like, holy smokes, Jesus started a movement. Like, this is a movement. Like, I'm part of a movement. This is what was missing. It was this call to a bigger life that was beyond myself. And generosity is right there with it, right? And so cultivating change is what drives me every day. And in my mothering, I have a 12-year-old. It so works there too. You know, motherhood and fatherhood is a lot of steady state, consistency, making dinner, doing the laundry, keeping the house clean. Like for someone like me, that is the opposite. That's off purpose for me. That makes me tired, drained. I want to just like, sometimes I just want to scream. So it has helped me because I can use my purpose and say, okay, how can I turn this kind of miserable, repetitive activity into on purpose? 
And I can do that by going, okay, what can I do to kind of bring some change? So I listen to a podcast when I'm doing those repetitive things that teaches me something I didn't know. Easy, right? But game changing. I didn't have to go to counseling. I just had to say, okay, I'm doing steady state. What can I do to cultivate some change here? And that's going to bring a whole new life. You can apply it to your giving. It's amazing what it can do to your giving. I used to do a lot of steady state volunteering. Greet her at the door because I'm real extroverted. People, oh, can you greet at the door? Well, I'm great for the first three people. And then nobody else get a bulletin because I find one person <laughs> who's hurting. And then we're all of a sudden having a deep conversation. There's people whizzing in, not getting welcomed. And I feel bad because I'm like, oh, pass out any bulletins. I mean, I generally don't say yes to those. I find them another volunteer who I know will love it. And then I tell them, when you need something to be started or have some change, like I'm your girl, like I'll work for you all night long to make it successful because I can't help but do that. That's how God made me. So that's a little window into some of the different ways that women are motivated and how the purpose plays a part. And purpose is true for men too. I mean, absolutely. It motivates men as well. Yeah. It's really interesting hearing you talk through all of that and especially in your own experience and how your own purpose guides what you do and what God does through you. And I don't think it's something that we've talked as much about on this podcast, but just like you're saying, it's such a crucial part of generosity, really. And I wanted to dig just a little bit deeper for somebody who's listening, and this is like a brand new concept for them. And they're trying to figure out how to even take the first step about figuring out, you know, what that purpose might look like for them. What kind of advice would you give to somebody like that? Well, I mean, I love the tool that we use. It's from a company called On Purpose Partners. And they have, I mean, you can go for 20 bucks and take the test. We offer it in our pathway to women as part of what we offer. But anybody can take that. And then they send you some emails later with, you know, how to apply it. It's just a really powerful tool. But again, it's not like, I don't know how to explain it. You don't always nail it right away. And we really help women be okay with that and figure it out. That's part of the journey. I mean, this is what his generosity is so outrageous. You know, there's so many varieties of flowers. There's so many different kinds of birds and animals, right? He didn't just do one of everything. He's like multiple. And then when he came to people, he's like, yeah, let's not make any two the same. Let's make them all different. And I just truly believe it's very scriptural to understand that he didn't do that a mistake. If you're not in the world, some part of the kingdom is going to lose. Mm-hmm. And if you don't show up for your life, and I mean that, like you got to get off the bench and it's different for everybody. It doesn't have to look like me or like you. It looks like whatever God's made you to be. And that takes a lot of courage. And I will tell you, it takes a lot of healing because there's so many lies we've believed. Our upbringing sometimes have kind of morphed. You know, We're just so convinced that we're supposed to be this. And to give that up would be death. Well, guess what? Generosity is full surrender, right? So we don't get to say to God, I don't like how you made me. The funny thing is, I really think that Jesus himself just models this kind of purposeful generosity. So in the story where Jesus is reinstating Peter's dignity after he denied him three times, he then uses that poetic tool to basically ask him three questions. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He goes through that. And then Peter's first response isn't gratitude. It's what about John? Because you just told me I'm going to die a terrible death. What about John? And you get the life you get. You live and no matter whether it's full of joy or pain, God will get glory if you accept his reality. And I believe so deeply that as we accept our life and who he's made us and what he's given us to its fullness, you cannot outgive him. It will look different in each of our lives. Comparison is the total enemy of generosity, but it truly is so generous that each of us is going to have a unique purpose in this world. And Ephesians 4, 6, I think it says, for we are God's handiwork or another translation says masterpiece. And you know, there's only one masterpiece in an artist, right? They do one masterpiece at a time. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That work ties to your purpose. That is what you are to do in the world. And we all need to help each other do that. And frankly, most of my Christian life is like, you got to be like this person or, you know, you're trying to be like something else. The only person we're supposed to be like is Jesus. And basically Jesus is like, do what the father says to do, period, hard stop. 
What do you think are the opportunities today now that you're seeing through Women Doing Well and many other organizations kind of a rounding out of what generosity really looks like? And the focus is on so much more than just giving as much money as possible. What do you think that is unlocking in the church? I'm not sure who said this first, but I believe that generosity is the new evangelism. We are in a season in the kingdom and God's world that our words are important. We need to still preach the gospel. Words are important, but people need to see the gospel. And this isn't social gospel stuff. This is, I'm not trying to like get theologically off track. What I'm saying is the world is looking at our behaviors. What are we doing differently? And I can't think of a better apologetic than radical generosity to the world. When somebody, even in a Starbucks line, if you just buy the coffee for the guy behind you and tell the lady to say, Jesus loves you. And I just wanted to bless you today. Like people don't have a, they don't have an apologetic for that. If you take it to the next level, which I believe as believers were called to, and you pay for somebody's tuition or you buy them a car or you do something that's like that next level for whatever community you're part of. Again, you can't compare. You just have what you have. They just don't understand it. It doesn't make logical sense because it's supernatural and it's a kingdom mindset. And I just hope that we can all just push into that more and be a little crazy because people are drawn to generous crazy. I'm telling you, it's addictive. It's contagious. And people start asking like they did in the book of Acts, like what's going on here? And in Acts, what were they doing? They were sharing with each other so that no one had need. Like, can we not do that today and still not be socialist? I think so. I think what we do is we do biblical generosity and we just look around right in front of us, like ask every day, like, God, who do you want to bless today through me? My words, my money, my time. Like there are so many ways to be generous. Just smile at somebody when you're in a grumpy mood and it'll change your mood and it'll change their mood. So I think it's the new evangelism. I think it's why he started this conversation again with his believers a number of years ago and why it's now turning into what I really see as a movement. Like you have multiple organizations, you have tons of sermons. Like it wasn't happening 20 years ago. It has happened throughout the church. So don't get me wrong. We're not the first time generosity has been a change component, but I think we're going to see a radical. I hope that generosity ushers in the next revival. I hope that we look so silly and crazy in the face of the world that they don't understand it. And they get curious again about who is this Jesus? Like, who are his people? Because this is crazy. You're right. hundred percent. There is something that you can't argue with in the face of generosity. It's different than every other kind of expression of faith, I think. And people have difficulty explaining that when they see it witnessed in front of them. I was wondering if you have seen either in your work through women doing well, or just in life, if you have seen some common misconceptions about generosity out there that can hold people back from stepping into this really joy-filled, purpose-filled life that you've so well described. I'm not sure if it's new. I just think people think that giving's a have to, not a get to. There's not enough teaching from the pulpit. There's not enough understanding that generosity is the path to the life that you want. The Yale Science of Well-Being course, it's a very popular course. It's free. A patron of Yale paid for it to be forever free. More than 3 million people the last time I looked had been taking the class. I like to say you can take the class and then get the sweatshirt that says Yale and say I went to (laughs) Yale. So there's just that. But what's fascinating is during COVID, a friend of ours has another ministry called We Want More. And they basically invited their community to take the course. And then once a week, they would meet online and they would have a teaching, a biblical teaching on the same thing that the Yale course just taught in science about happiness, which was all scripture. Some of the key elements that you learn in the class is that stuff, success, getting all that doesn't bring you happiness. What brings happiness scientifically in the brain, because I can study it, looks like, is savoring, gratitude, social connection, kindness. It's things that are free. They're free. Every single one of them, free. Doesn't cost a thing, but the world is selling, selling, selling. So to combat that, the professor goes into how the brain literally is against believing it. 
and will force you into the things that don't bring you happiness. And so the Bible, of course, as you read scripture and let it transform your mind, your brain can change you, but it takes a lot of reading of scripture. You got to really, and it's not a have to, it's a get to, right? Like we get to read the Bible. It's an amazing transformative book that changes everything. If we read it as a love letter to us, as a letter that says, I'm better than anything you can possibly imagine. Every intention I've had for you is good. Every hard thing I've allowed will bring you greater joy and fulfillment. That you, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's so good, but we just don't talk about it in those ways. We talk about tithing and we talk about, you know, we don't have enough, you know, we need more. And everyone feels just, oh, yucky about giving. They feel like, oh, especially if you have financial resources, everybody wants you for that. And it gets really tiring for the people that I work with to always have to question. And they feel grateful to be able to give many of them who have the biblical picture of money, but it still comes with a lot of sadness, honestly, because it never feels like enough. A lot of ministries just have the oh, we just need more. And I just think we need to change that conversation around. The Bible's the only way to do it. You have to look at scripture and just see it. But you have to see it through a lens of abundance, not a lens of scarcity, not a lens of a God that's after us, but a God who like trying to punish us, but a God who's pursuing us, pursuing us to give us good things, pursuing us to show us the better way. And it is counterintuitive and it is not going to feel like you're going to win in the end, but you do. Well, Julie, I'm really excited about some of the conversations that you're having with people and you get to see firsthand kind of the fruit that comes from that. And I just hope that we continue to see that grow and spread. And when you have a conversation with someone, they spend decades going and sharing what they've learned with other people in their circle. But what do you look forward to when you think about the future? I just get so much joy when one woman wakes up to who she is and what she has and that she gets to give it into the kingdom and she doesn't need anybody to give her permission other than the father. Right. And so watching that one woman at a time, but I see thousands, I'm multiple thousands. I believe that this will change the world because for whatever reasons, women have not been part of the conversation at the level that they wanted. The fact that 7,000 women filled out a 30 minute survey on money has got to tell us something. That's a huge body of research. And I think just that alone should encourage us to sit down with women and ask, you know, what does generosity look like for you? Just ask a lot of questions. But I get super excited because women are communal. It's not about being better. It's not about powering up. It's about making God's kingdom look beautiful. It's about calling in healing and renewal and the renewal of all things. And that's going to take everybody being fully who they're supposed to be, completely aligned about what money and giving look like. And that's beyond money, right? It's your time. It's your heart. It's all of you. And just putting it into action, not sitting around talking about it, but actually doing it. So at Women Doing Well, we activate women. That's part of our mission. We're not talking about more knowledge for your head. You can get that in Bible studies. That's good. But you come to us. It's boot camp time. We're going to help you walk into who you are. And we don't keep you. There's nothing to join at Women Doing Well unless you share our passion for generosity. We want you to go and do and give your stuff to people and missions that need it. And we celebrate that equally because we don't want to hold you. We want to send you. We want to give you to the world more confident, more courageous, and more bold in your giving of all those things that we've talked about. And it's just a simple 12-session pathway. It's not complicated and it's free. So everyone's invited. We love to help women. And I believe as women are helped, it will help the whole family. This is really a beautiful thing that God's doing. And I don't think I mentioned this, but women already own half the wealth in the United States. And with the greatest wealth transfer happening, they will hold 63% of the wealth by 2030. There's a lot of just mainstream statistics. Christians are acknowledging this now. And that's a beautiful thing. It's just going to look different. And we just all have to figure that out together. Yeah, absolutely. Julie, where can people learn more about Women Doing Well, get more information or get involved? Sure. Our website, womendoingwell.org, will give you all the starting places and you know, you're welcome to visit. Awesome. And I encourage everybody to do that. 
as we get to the end of the episode, I did want to leave some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with just a practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So Julie, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Well, I think if you haven't yet gotten yourself in a generous environment to learn what God says about generosity, of course, there's so many organizations now doing that kind of work, National Christian Foundation, Generous Giving, The Gathering. There's so many seeking to equip the body of Christ to be more generous. So I would do that. But probably the game changer would be to not just keep it for yourself, but if you've already started believing and living the generous life, find someone who hasn't and help them. Because the only way this world will change is if the generosity message spreads. And I don't think that's going to happen fast enough if we wait on everybody to write books and really understand from the pulpit. I think it needs to start with every single person walking into their own generosity and then grabbing the person next to them and helping them do the same. I love that. And I think it ties in exactly with what you've been saying this whole time, that generosity is a team sport. It's a community thing. And that's how God designed it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Julie. This has been fantastic. And just so much of the joy of generosity, I think, comes through everything that you say. And we're so glad to have you with us. It's been a blast. And I love how you guys do this generously. You don't do this for the money or the accolade. It's been such a privilege to just be with you both and just learn what you're doing. So thanks for letting me be a small part. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge through our website at finishlinepledge.com or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 73. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>